0: Managing Violence Podcast episode 72 with martial artist, dojo operator and humanitarian Mary Stevens. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Managing Violence podcast. We are back for 2021 after a short break at the end of last year. It was our longest break we've taken since season two, so I am feeling nice and refreshed and ready to get going. And I am joined by the wonderful Mary Stevens, all the way from the UK, joining us from her home dojo, inclusive of cats. So please uh, give a shout-out to Mary's cats. Anyone who's friends with Mary on Facebook knows all about the cats. Um, (laughs) Mary began began karate in 2003 at the age of 31. Uh, Her son was actually being bullied uh, and she enrolled him and then took a chance to begin for herself. Uh, She went on to become obsessed with the study of self-protection and and importantly, separate from karate uh, and founded her own dojo, the Athena School of Karate. And Mary's also a project manager and advisor to Fair Fight, uh, helping to upskill vulnerable young women in India. And we will talk about that at length. Mary's got a lot of, a lot of other stuff going on as well. So Mary, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
1: I'm way too excited to be here, Joe. So <laughs> exciting. Wow. I've been listening to this podcast for ages and now I'm on it. Amazing.
0: You've made it. You've made it. Uh, Mary, Mary's well known uh, in uh, both my community, uh, the, the Managing Violence Tribe, and also Randy King's community. Uh Mary, Mary sort of pops up everywhere. Mary famously uh, got a, got a shout out in the episode I did with Randy because she sent my daughter a book and not Randy's a book. Randy's daughter a book. So yeah, more uh, a burn than
1: a shout out. I would have said. Sorry. More, more a burn than a shout. out More a burn than a
0: shout out. She got, you can mentioned mention name. That's close enough. <laughs> so Mary, uh, look, we, you you and I've been friends on Facebook for a little while and uh, been following a, a bit of the work you do. Uh, you you have several points of difference from our, our normal guests, uh, which. Uh, I really love because I, after two plus years of doing this podcast, I've kind of interviewed most of the people I set out to interview. And now I'm after the really interesting stories as opposed to yeah, just the, yeah, the big names. all boring you
1: know. people that you've interviewed in the past. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly right. So, uh, but, but what, I, what I love about your story, a couple of things. Firstly, you didn't start martial arts as a child, which nearly everybody else in the, uh, like in the entire catalogue has. Uh, you started uh, as an adult. So let's let's start there as a beginning point. So, how how do you go about, I know you wanted to start karate when you're younger, tell us that story.
1: Well, yeah, I kind of feel sorry for my mum in this story because it's such an important part of my identity as a martial artist. Um, Because my mum was a very keen squash player and that meant that every Saturday morning we would be down the sports centre waiting while my mum played her league games um and um so we got to know the insides of the sports center really well i can smell it now um <laughs> and there was this really shitty poster on the wall um which said uh well it, it had a silhouetted kicking figure yep. yeah yes. and, um, my friend patrick whose mum also was playing squash at the time looked at it and went carrot <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, no, basically you doofus, that says karate. And it was like, well, that's so cool. It was really, and you know, I asked my mom about it and she's like, no, no, karate for boys. That's not, that's not a girl's thing. And we would have been, so I guess maybe I would have been seven or eight. So we're talking the, the late seventies. I was born at end of 71. And um, so it was the big boom right in the UK of martial arts and, and that was definitely not something that I was part of. And it's really weird because pretty much all the guys in my, well, everybody in my martial arts network that is my age was part of that big boom. Um, and on the one hand, I'm kind of jealous of, you know, how long they've been doing it and they were part of it when it's kind of started in the UK and so on. But on the other side of it, at least I still have most of my joints, despite BJJ. Because the way that karate was practiced back then, it was pretty much, dist- you know, very destructive to the body.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's uh, especially that older style, uh, you, you would you would have a couple of disabilities and maybe a few teeth missing. It's, sure. uh, yeah, if, especially if you're still going now. like You, you wouldn't have made <laughs> yeah. it that
1: far. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, so I didn't get to do it then, but I'd always uh, I always had that fascination um, for the aesthetics of it um, because it's really cool and powerful and um and so on and um i did well like when i trained as a fitness instructor it, it just started to be that kind of taibo era and there were um people like using martial arts moves in part of fitness and i wanted to get me some of that um, and i realized that basically uh, that i was quite shit at it um, <laughs> you know and i wanted to look authentic i didn't want to be kind of you know doing my uppercuts like ice cream scoops and um you know kicking like i was trying to get my wellies off i wanted to to do it properly and um it just all sort of came together because at at the same time unfortunately my son um was was being bullied at school and i was trying to find um uh, some kind of thing for him that was going to help him be a bit more bully deterrent um because he was only little he was like not even five at the time um and it was clearly going to be an ongoing problem um, he has, um, he, he's slightly autistic, um, mm-hmm. so that for, you know, it, it actively managed, then um, martial arts can be a fantastic tool um, um, in helping um, kids who are, you know, not necessarily the same as everybody else mm. um, and don't have the same um, social skills um, right off the bat. Um, so. I wanted him to do it and at the same time i realized they had an adult program and the kids were just that bit older that i could get them to bed and then go train um, which is such a thing for women in martial arts yeah um yeah we've had lots of conversations with that but like women that have been training enjoying their training and then you know they decide to have a family and even if they manage to keep up with their work which is not a given um you know a whole different thing there in terms of gender equality Martial arts training, uh, like for most women, just absolutely goes out the window at that point.
0: Yeah, any, any sort of uh, after business hours, hobbies are, are hard to come by, especially in those early years when uh, everyone's so dependent upon you. Uh, and look, we, we found the same thing with uh, yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of people fade away from martial arts in their late teens, early 20s, when they start getting careers and there's, they're trying to do extra hours and they're trying to save for a house and they're trying to do all those things and they have kids. And we often say it's actually when the kids start martial arts is when you get them back. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sometimes it, it's 10 or 15 years removed, but they, they bring the kid along for a kid's class and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I could try that. I, could, I couldn't, this, it's bonding. I could. I could do that. And then all of a sudden it becomes more about the parent training than it's about the child.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, which is really interesting. And yeah, my adult program is full of, parents that have been watching their kids for ages and it's great because they get a good head start because often they've been supporting the children so they have that advantage as a beginner that they're already a little bit familiar with the um with the material so that gives them a good boost to start off with and then by the time they settle into it and it starts to get a bit tougher they've made the habit so you know i'm a, I'm a big fan of that generally for sure so yeah i started then um and, and loved it um and Began to teach, um, not very far into that, um, so yeah, it, I had a real focus then on um, on like kids' well-being in martial arts, mm. and I still do. Um, so my school has never been like the kind of super competitive or that kind of thing. It's much more about um, the broader picture and connecting the martial arts outside into your into your life like it's no good being a fantastic student in the dojo if you also don't you know do your homework or you constantly um winding up your parents and your siblings and and so on so Thank you. Thank you. that's kind of the concept that we work by
0: excellent excellent now uh, you mentioned uh in your bio and, and obviously anyone who has followed your work uh you you're, you're very much a, a karate at, at heart but also see a difference between karate and self protection. And I, I just want to sort of ask where, where that came from, because a lot of people, I, I find especially people that, that start a martial art and go deep at a later age, tend to be very in their lane. And they're, like they're, they don't want to learn anything new. Once they got one down, like by that point, they're already kind of 40. So it's like, well, I don't have time to learn anything else, or I don't have enough years left to learn anything else. So I'm just going to be very, very good at Shotokan or whatever it is they, they choose. Um, yeah, what, I, know, I know, I kind of know the answer to this because I know who you trained with. <laughs> but talk us through that, uh, that discovery that karate and self-protection are not necessarily the same thing, but they can complement each other.
1: Yeah, I'm really, really militant about this. I've had to become really militant about this because um, there's a kind of a, um, as you'd well know, um, because I've used your blog on this to stick in people's faces and go look at these arguments and then you'll see um it's a kind of a, a sloppiness which says well martial arts is self-defense and that's just been conceptually and they you know i know it because i see it in the movies yeah i've got these fantastic skills and you know if somebody like <laughs> at that moment where it all goes wrong in the bar and i'm surrounded by all of these people i can do many spinning kicks and i will be fine um <laughs> I mean, I exaggerate to make the point, but, um, when I was working, um, so, so, so basically it's always been part of my consciousness that right from the very beginning in my karate training, um, my instructor was, uh, a big fan of Jeff Thompson. And, um, in fact, on my first karate session, way, way back, I think my instructor had just been on a course with Jeff Thompson. Um, and, um, We were basically working through his notes on the fence and um (laughs) so i always kind of like spent my first karate session instead of punching like ballooning up and down in the old jeff thompson way (laughs) and fuck off stay there kind of thing going on as as kind of my introduction to this is the world of martial arts so you know that had always been in there but it had still blended in and it was only really um through working in india where separating um martial arts and self-protection and self-defense or you know i don't use those terms synonymously um, at all which is really important um, yeah at that point um it became a crisis because what so i manage an instructor team and what my instructor team were teaching as self-defense as women's self-defense uh, was going to get people killed um, and at that point, it's not funny, and it's not a Facebook debate. It's a genuine thing. It's like, if this is how you're teaching a defense against a hair grab, for example, and you know what I'm talking about, a very, very old school, a shot of can, in fact, um, you know, very static, um, you know, bears no relation to reality at all and sets up a false sense of confidence, um, which is, you know, absolutely immoral. Um, and and dangerous and does exactly the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. So at that point it became really really important to upskill um, in a very serious way because you can have that as an opinion, but you need to be able to back that opinion up and to articulate it for sure. Um, so that was where my really my deep dive began um, into the, this whole world, the you know the managing violence world if you like.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that, and I do want to dive deep into uh, the work you've done in India and, and about that project, but it, it is really interesting that it was like that crisis of urgency, like we, we don't have time for people to get it right, and, and I was very fortunate as well, like I, I got that message at a relatively young age, I mean I was like not 18, 19, 20, something like, somewhere along those lines, and um, uh, a guy named Shane Cassidy, shout out to Shane if you are listening I on know, I know the occasion to pick up an episode. Um, Shane Cassidy was a former military combatives instructor uh, and I, I did a course with him. And he he said to me in a break, he said that most, most martial arts were developed, even the good ones, were developed to train someone to be ready for war after 10 years. So they start training at six, six years of age, they do 10 years of immersion. And then by the time they're 16, 17, they're ready to enter the warrior class and go to war. Right, that's what they were built for, uh, and 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 that's those are the good ones that are still true to their martial roots, and then you got those that basically became self development systems because there wasn't a place for war afterwards, and they had to be of use for something. Um, so so that, then there's those that have deviated before, but even those that were designed and are still true to that martial origin, they're still over a long period of time of continuous training for a privileged class that could train every day for multiple hours a day with all the support and the best instructors. And that is not the reality of someone living in a slum who's in danger of being killed or raped for going to get water from the well, right? That's, that's not their reality. They don't have the ability to train. So if you've got that person and I've got two hours to give them information that might save their life, what's that two hours gonna include? And it's probably not gonna be a static hair grab defense.
1: Oh, so, cool. yeah. yeah. Uh, on, that, on that basis, what's really interesting is that there's two projects that I'm working with in India one is the um is a short form this is how we quickly upskill women in vulnerable communities and the other is a long form we are teaching karate to these girls in a safe house over a number of years so and for me that is the karate project and the other is the self-defense project and i i treat them completely differently so yeah that's a living um example of exactly what you're saying
0: yeah uh, before we go down that path because I, I do know probably the majority of the podcast but i do want to clarify terms because just because you raised it what is the difference for you between self-defense and self-protection how, how do you define those two things
1: self-defense is the uh physical and legal um you know that what the skills that you're allowed to use in that situation self-protection is the wide world of um you know um, behaviors Um, uh, awareness de-escalation threat assessment safe habits all of that that kind of thing so self-protection is that big umbrella so when i founded my own school i was like okay this is where we're going with it traditional karate modern self-protection and um life skills generally like that sort of holistic approach so yeah that's for me and, and that comes from jamie my my self-defense instructor um, as i said but he's what one of jeff's original students um and that's um a particular focus for him a real bugbear for him if people use the term self-defense carelessly when actually they mean self-protection
0: Yeah, Mark McYoung said on the interview that I had with him that, you know, self-defense is a legal term, so be careful using it because it it actually has a legal definition. Uh, It kills me that I have to use the term so often for search engine optimization (laughs) (laughs) because no one's searching for self-protection except for people that already know what they're looking for. Um, Anyway, uh, let's talk about how did you get involved with Fair Fight? And what is Fair Fight? For those that have no idea what it is, uh, which I assume is majority of people,
1: what is it and
0: how did you get involved?
1: Um, Well, it's Fair Fight is an NGO which is run from um, Holland, from Rotterdam. Um, It was originally founded to um, support uh, vulnerable young women in Zimbabwe, Um, and then the project was extended out to India um, subsequently. Uh, The concept is um, using martial arts um, for women's empowerment. Um, With that kind of long-term feel of we work with these girls, um, um, for over a long period of time um, and it's, con- the, the concept is about supporting within the community so the instructors are local um, and what we're doing is we're supporting the instructors um, to deliver valuable, well, you know, to, to help them deliver appropriate Martial arts education to to the young women. So for me, like the new development that I have in India is that we have a specifically self protection wing, um, which is in no way related to karate. Um, And so the the idea is that we work within the communities supporting the training of instructors, who then deliver to uh, whatever the many women in the community, um, the skills that they need.
0: So your instructors are they are they typically already martial artists or are they people you've trained from scratch or what's how does that work?
1: Um, Right so again um, in the Indian project which is which is my project um, we work um, with a a martial arts school um, which is a a traditional Shotokan school Um, and those instructors train um, the girls that we have So there's another another NGO that we partner with that um, looks after girls whose parents can't afford to feed them, to educate them, and so on, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, is a massive problem. Perhaps for context, I should say that the place that I I work in, um, in Uttar Pradesh, is the most dangerous place in the whole world to be a woman. Um, There's, um, you know, gang rape, acid attack um the the incidents just keep coming um i stay very tuned into them because it's important to know what the instructors that i have on the ground are dealing with um a couple of recent cases um a a girl was set upon just in the course of her normal like having to take rubbish out um she was um she was raped they cut her tongue out so she couldn't tell they broke her back um and she died later in hospital and there was no Active investigation from the police, even though she lived long enough to identify the attackers, they had plenty of time to get away because the whole, um, you know, the the issue of um, rape not being um, followed up, and the um, the declassification of um, Muslim women of or of women of low caste um, is of, of the whole caste system is is very much uh, an issue there as well. So. The instructors that I work with, the karate instructors are um, young men, black belts that have come through a traditional Shotokan education, but the team of um, women that I work with in the self defence project, um, none of them are martial artists. Um, They are all angry young women who recognise the the injustice. Uh, who really want to change India. And um, many of them are themselves victims of rape and acid attacks because there's a big thing of, you know, if she won't um, like pay you any attention, then you throw acid in her face so that she, you spoil her for everybody else, kind of thing. Um, so a lot of them have suffered you know, serious um, scarring, and, and, and it's just, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to get your head around but it's there every day you know for them that's their normality
0: yeah and i and i i think it's important to to bring these stories to light because a lot of our listeners will not have that in mind as a reality of india you know like, like india is a you know, it's, it's a global power it's a it's a country of in areas of tremendous wealth uh and, and we kind of see it as a, a center of education a center of yeah, development and science, but there are some tremendously poor areas uh, and a, a very destructive caste system and minority groups are, are, are not welcomed in a lot of communities and it go, it goes really deep and I, and I think it's just something we don't necessarily always equate with India unless you've got your finger on the pulse. You know, of, it's, it's not like you said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm training girls in Colombia. Uh, where people, like, oh, okay, I've heard of Colombia. I, <laughs> I know that's a place with crime, right? India is a little bit of a different kettle of fish and uh, it, it's important to bring those stories to light. Uh, the countries that we think of all the time. And we, we maybe don't or wouldn't give a lot of uh, time of day to the needs of people from those countries because we think they're kind of, you know, they're doing okay. There's, no, there's nothing too serious there. Uh, but we talk about people being scarred for life and, and acid attacks and police actively not investigating attacks. So those are people that need some help.
1: And that's absolutely the everyday reality. And, and you're right that the problem with India being more wealthy now is that in terms of support for um, NGO work there, some people are like, well, India should be helping themselves at this point. Uh, I don't wanna give money to that because um, you know they have the capacity to sort this stuff out for themselves. But this is one of the reasons why the project that I'm working with is about ideas and training um more than finances obviously the finances are important but right now i'm not spending any money on it uh, because i'm training girls over zoom um as best as we can you know on a, a and the internet connections into varanasi are terrible none of the girls speak english i don't speak any hindi so you know you can imagine how how challenging that is it's absolutely mad but it's really working and that's the the really um insane part of it um so yeah Varanasi is one of the poorest areas um it has a massive problem with child prostitution a massive problem with drug trafficking all of which tends to um, not draw the attention of the police whatsoever um because of all the bribery um it is um it's got a very high rate of um baby girls not making it to um adulthood um terrible rates for women's education um the number of homeless is very difficult to calculate um and yeah it's um it's a very very dangerous place to be um if you're a young indian woman so So so
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and and look it's i i do think there's um yeah some people don't want to hear about it uh they're they're quite happy just going up and down the dojo doing their kata and and that and that's fine like that's that's fine no one's asked you to save the world but if you if you are Portraying yourself as a self-protection instructor who is actively trying to help people, then you need to look at whether you're helping the people that need the help, and yeah. and what are you doing to help those people? And if you have a skill set that can be useful, what are you doing with that skill set? Uh, and and again, look, I'm not discrediting anyone who wants to help the kids in their own neighborhood or anyone who wants to 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 teach a class. And I know everyone's got commercial viability and everyone's got to do like all those things. We we all have the same struggles. Um but I do think the people that are that are going above and beyond to help communities that can't reward them that can't pay them that 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 really need that help um, need to be celebrated so what what are you actually teaching these girls like what what are the skills that you you' you're developing
1: um, so what we've kind of done is we've evolved a curriculum um, okay so we're all living in this really weird time which is I'm still waiting for somebody to go stop. This is, you know, actually we were just filming a dystopia and uh, you can all go back to normal now. Um, But nearly a year in and that hasn't happened yet. So, um, you know. Um,
0: If anything, it gets weirder.
1: uh, Yeah, exactly. The radio
0: are doing well. Whoever's watching this has gone, this is great. I can't wait for season two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Whereas everybody in it's like, let us out. Um, So yeah, I've spent, you know, since, However much um, in here, trying to teach everything that we normally do physically, um, and so you develop different ways of of, of teaching over Zoom. Um, you maximize what you can have, um, and you kind of wind down what you can't have. So obviously, there's a huge amount of soft skills work which can be delivered um, not in person. And what's really interesting is that although um, the girls that I'm working with have had some. Self defense education. They've not really had a lot of self protection education, um, and so and that's kind of been my starting point. Is let's talk about everything that we can do that's going to save lives based on um, you know awareness skills and de escalation and so on threat assessment. Um, and so creating resources and working with a translator to try and make those make sense has been um, part of it, but. What's also, you know, when you're trying to teach people in right there in the extremity, they also want physical skills, they also want the reassurance, particularly, and this is something that I've talked about with Pan Amatish a lot, um, who's um, been one of my resources for dealing with the trauma side of this, which is quite intense. Um, that women who have, have been through that in extreme traumatic experience have a need to understand what their options might have been in that situation. Um, because replaying those scenarios and winning is part of the recovery process. Um, so I do also teach physical skills. Um, and then how you do that is, I mean, like there's always like we're all working on solo skill drills, we're looking at um the, you know this is how we're teaching eye gouges i've got my friend jimmy the dummy over there who um i work with or, or i use my like my sleeves to teach this is how we're working with a rear bear hug or anything like that you know you improvise you fucking improvise because you have to right so um and and it works you know if we're and the girls oh my god they're so amazing like they'll be there was this one thing uh a few um A couple of months back where we were teaching. I was teaching how to get up safely from the ground, um, you know, uh, defensively quickly, etc. And um, the girls that I was training that day had like one mobile phone between them. So they're trying to work on this tiny screen. Um, and I can't get them both in shot, so it, it ended up that I was teaching them in rotation, and one of them was tracking the other one with the phone so that I could help her and support her. And then we would swap over, and, and you know, and they're in this. The girls that I'm training are not rich. They've come from the communities that they're trying to help, so they don't have stable Wi-Fi. They don't have high quality mobile phones. They don't have an environment. You know, they don't have this environment to train in and that's one of the things that's so hard about it honestly joe this is why i had to kind of go to pam in the end was because i'm walking out of my dojo at the end of one of these sessions where they've asked some heart-rending questions and then this is when we were still able to go to classes which isn't the thing now driving off to go and teach my own like four and five year olds hey sensei you know let's let's bounce and punch and you know do all the karate kid stuff and I was really finding it very difficult to leave that mentally because the contrast was just way too much. And somehow that's been harder than when I actually go to India and spend time in the communities and work with people and then have more, maybe more closure when I come away. Not that I feel, and you see, even when saying you want closure from it is like, well, why do I get to shut the door on it Yeah. when these girls don't? Yeah. You
0: know? I think I think it's easy to, to chunk it as a chapter. You're like, okay, that, that was that project and now I've got to go now i got to go give my 120% to my kids class and, and that and I get to be kids karate instructor for a bit and then I get to come back and do this. But when you when you're mixing the two together, um, I and look, that's for, for a number of years I walked away from doing any sort of reality-based self-defense or self-protection training because it was emotionally draining to and not only because, like, I felt like half the time I was being a, an awful human being because I was role playing, right? And I'm able to role play this dark side of humanity on a regular basis. And then the other time I was con- trying to convince people why they couldn't do jumping, spinning kicks, right? And <laughs> I'm like, so I'm like, I feel like I was like constantly in conflict either in, as myself or as a character. And um, so I was like, it was so, so much more fun just to go and fight people because it's fun. But like, like just can I, can I just, can I just? beat you up for a medal. It's so much more fun. Um, So yeah, look, I, I totally get that, but I think it's, it's hard, right? But it's, it's necessary. Uh, And coming back to that, that sense of service, I think as, as martial artists, more people, and I think, I think it's in most martial artists, especially instructors, people that have actually gone all in and said, I want to actually teach uh, because I haven't met any martial arts instructors that have lasted more than three years that became an instructor to get rich. (laughs) there might be a few that had misguided notions and then life slaps them around the head and they they give up on it or they decide there was something better in it for them but um if you if you've lasted a martial arts instructor then you have a heart of service because if you didn't you wouldn't do it right Mm -hmm. unless you're just trying to facilitate your own training addiction and it kind of evens out That might be a side thing but um with that in mind i think it's it is so important that That we have something that we can really dedicate ourselves to, whether it's your kids' classes or whether it's a a community or whether it's helping mums get back into some sort of healthy hobby after yeah after parent uh, you know those early childhood years, whatever it is, like you need to have something that you feel like you're making a difference in. And to be honest, that's what the podcast is for me, right? This is this is like when I my work got crazy and I couldn't teach classes on a regular basis anymore. The podcast filled a gap for me to be. I feel like I was still contributing. And uh, I just, I love hearing your story about that because I I can tell from your face, I can tell by the the emotion in your voice, how much that has meant to you in your life and, and the perspective it's given you.
1: what's really cool having you say that about your podcast as well, is that it's amazing because it's really worked. And one of the things that, yeah. So basically once I started off on my, I really have to educate myself about this. Um I found a really good trainer, which i I'm very blessed to um to have Jamie. He's awesome. Um but then I also Jamie Club, correct? Yeah, Jamie Club, that's right. Yeah,
0: shout um, out to Jamie. Hi Jamie. Go check out I'm... Jamie Club if you have you haven't heard of him before.
1: Yeah. Um, also, I mean, and, and great for me as well, because um, as a, mostly a kids martial arts instructor, that's what pay the, pays the bills. He's uh a, he's an expert in child self-protection. So we've had, um, so I've learned so much about that from him. And I kind of just like, I went to find him. That's a, quite an interesting, uh, uh, so apart what I was going to say, and I'll tell you, I went to find Jamie um, to try and learn some pad work for self-defense, because I I'd kind of, and I just thought that would be a start point. Uh, let's, let's, let's look at really improving the pad work that I'm doing with my own students. And maybe that will be transferable into what I'm doing with India. And um, yeah, it was absolutely surreal. So people that don't know about Jamie, Jamie um, Jamie's comes from a circus family. And um, they, uh, when circuses kind of, when animals in circuses became illegal, um, they retired all of their animals and trained them for films. So, so I'm been. I, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. So, um, so when I went to train with Jamie, um, I didn't realize that I was walking. It looked like a farm, so I didn't realize I was walking into a zoo. Um, and um, I also didn't realize that until we were like in the middle of pad work. You know, when you've got a new instruction, you're trying really hard to make a good impression, <laughs> and you want to be like really, really attentive and focused. And the guy's standing there holding pads, and a kangaroo jumps past behind him in the, you know, and. And then I would just like trying to be like, you, 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 everything in you goes, oh my God, there's a kangaroo. But then also logic says that this is his home. He probably knows there's a kangaroo in the backyard. And especially then, in
0: England, I, right? especially in England, this isn't a surprise. Especially
1: In England, yeah, yeah. And then the penguins behind that. And then, <laughs> you know, it's just like the little penguins jumping into the pot. I'm, and I'm trying really hard
0: to focus, yeah. So e- um, even here, it would be very unusual to see a kangaroo and a penguin at the same time. Just
1: yeah good Um, i'm i'm glad we're clear on that um so yeah but and obviously his background is um from a a circus family Uh, they used to do bare knuckle boxing and all of this kind of stuff so yeah there's a there's a very interesting history um on the side of that so yeah so i found jamie but i also at the same time went into because i'm a hell of a geek how much can i learn about this and how quickly so that's where i kind of all the reading um and all the podcasts because just kind of like, uh, there's time to go to podcast university. Um, and your podcast was really, really important to me because you, it's such a hall of fame of names that I hadn't really been aware of. Um, and it really helped me shape the direction um, that I wanted to go in with my own um, self-protection training because it made me aware of who was out there um, and who really resonated with me. Um, And who then I was going to kind of take up and try and learn from because you know there's so much out there. Um, And that's the brilliant thing about the current situation with the Internet and um, and that there's uh, there's so many cool things that people can learn so yeah there was you there was Randy King. um, um, Who, of course, is a legend, even though he is very mean to me. Um, And then you interviewed pam armitage and that was a game changer for me i, I mean uh, uh, rich i love rich he's fantastic um and uh, i've learned so much from um studying with him and he's been really really supportive as well um but for me to find somebody like pam that really gets the whole trauma side of things and has such a practical approach to how you manage that i mean that's going to keep me in this business for a much longer time and we've got a, a really great um connection that's that's helping me um, just kind of manage manage myself in it and also then deliver managing for the girls on the ground who are having this like extreme experience all the time to how to help keep them grounded and sustain um, them in that field because the danger of burnout is very high.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I just need to, I need to segue there just for, for the sake of Pam because um, this, the second person this week that has said something about her and I know she'll probably listen to this episode because you're on it. I have had a lot of, obviously, for two years, basically interviewed everyone that I kind of wanted to interview. Most of the big names, most of, most of the celebrated authors, UFC fighters the works, right? I have got a lot of fan feedback saying, thanks for interviewing this person. Thanks for interviewing that person. Great show, yada, yada. The most emotional and sincere thank yous I've received have come from people that have said, thank you for introducing me to Pam Armitage. And... Pam probably won't believe it because I know she was like, "No one knows who I am." But thank you for having me on the show. It's great. It's like, no, no. People need to know who you are. And, and that episode, I've had more people give sincere, sincere thank yous for for thank you for introducing me to her material than any other episode I've ever done. And uh, and that that that's that's a game changer to me. It's I me. Mean, yeah, it's great talking to a Dave Grossman. It's great talking to a Jeff Thompson, but. People know who they are. Like people, If you're listening to a Jeff Thompson interview, you've probably already read 30 of his books, right? If, you, if you're listening to Dave Grossman, you've probably already read On Killing and On Combat. But yeah, Pam was a game changer for a lot of people. So um, yeah, shout out to Pam. You're doing amazing work and you are changing the world, even if it is just one podcast listener at a time.
1: Uh, for sure. Um, and, and just to add on to that, if anybody hasn't done Pam's, um, like she does a, a two-hour webinar on um, making your self-defense training better for um, trauma-informed practice. Uh, If anybody hasn't done that, then they need to hunt it out and do it because it's, it's a really easy to access. You can do it online and it will change how you deliver your stuff just in a simple because people are a bit afraid of that and they're like oh no now I'm gonna to have to be all touchy-feely and like you know oh god I don't even want anybody like guys And don't, don't talk about trauma around me don't talk about trauma let's just work on I'm just gonna grab you around the throat and I'll show you how to deal with that um but yeah people should do that for sure
0: yeah look we, we could go on a sidetrack on a, on a tangent there but um we, we say in self-defense ignorance is not an intelligence defend intelligent defense right saying saying that it won't happen to you is not a good way to defend yourself and I think being ignorant of the trauma that your students have been through is not a good way of becoming a better instructor. Even if, if you're not comfortable talking about it, that's your problem, not their problem. Right? And unless you are running a pure combat sport, young athlete gym, there's a very good chance. And even if you are, there's a very good chance that a lot of your, or a number of your students are there because of a the trauma they've been through. And they may not be disclosing it to you, especially if you're uncomfortable talking about it because they can tell. Uh, but Uh, you could be a much better instructor and if all you're motivated by is retaining that student, then it's worth, it's a worthwhile investment. But if you want to make a difference in their lives, learn what they need. Uh, And, and it's not, it's not, this isn't a niche skill. This isn't like, Oh, I want to be a specialist in trauma. If you teach martial arts, you are teaching people who have been traumatized almost guaranteed.
1: Yeah. And they're there with questions in their head and they might not dare to ask those questions or they might be looking for opportunities to ask those questions So yeah, absolutely 100%. And so it needs to be that you have that relationship of trust with your students. And there's lots of great strategies that you can do to help you sincerely develop that. And you're right, most martial artists are very well intentioned. Um, I've come across the most incredible support from the martial arts community for the work that we do, um, because they're like, wow, I can totally see how that would work. I'm gonna get behind that because that's a great way to empower women. Um, But yeah, having a toolbox is always great. And um, yeah, she, like, Pam has like a nine points of here's different things that you can do, um, which immediately is going to make people's self-defense teaching better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't listened to that episode with Pam, make sure you go check it out. Uh, Mary, with, with the Fair Flight Varanasi, uh, what do you see as the the next step there? I mean, obviously, I mean, travel, travel resuming is going to be big to be able to get back face to face. What? what is actually going to make a difference there? Because I know sometimes when you're working in these communities that have got such huge problems and you're just one person who's trying to equip a handful of people and hoping that it spreads, sometimes it can feel a bit like, uh, are we even making a difference? Like, are we, are we actually changing anything? Um, in terms of larger scale change, like what do you see the future with that project and, and with trying to improve the lives of the girls in that, in that area?
1: um that's a really big question and uh, immediately i've got like a three different directions of the answers for that uh one is i know you're soon going to talk to debbie stephen and everybody should listen to that because debbie is much further down this road than i am and she's got a fantastic network of change going on uh, which is really really inspiring so um like point a listen to debbie she's got that sewn up she's awesome how she does it. I don't know, but she's amazing. Um, this, then, this
0: episode when it comes out, Debbie is next week. Just, just <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um,
1: And then point two, um, sure, What can we do? You have to make the change that you can make. You're not just going to go, oh, well, my, you know, my thing won't make a difference. There's the starfish thing, which I find really inspiring when I get a little bit overwhelmed of the guy, you know, he sees a girl throwing starfish back into the sea. And because they've all been washed up, and he was like, "There are millions of these starfish. You're not going to be able to throw enough of them back in the sea to make a difference." And she throws one in, and she says it made a difference for that one. Mm-hmm. And you have to work with that attitude. So every time I see something land with the girls that I'm teaching, and these girls are these are these are the girls that are doing the hard, years, yeah, Priyanka, the um, the one of. The leader I'm working with, she's done 4,000, she's had 4,000 women that she has personally worked with on self defense training because they're, you know, they are doing these one day workshops in all of these, in the most vulnerable communities though, like you cannot even begin to imagine. Um, and I've visited them and I still find it unimaginable, if that makes sense. Like one of the schools that I um, went to see, um, you know, you have honors boards in schools, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, here's the you know class toppers for this, class toppers for that. There's also a here's a memorial board for all the kids that died of snake bites walking to school. Wow, wow! Because because they're so committed to getting an education that they will walk those five kilometers through the most dangerous territories to get there, and there's no medical support. You know, this is a school with no electricity. This is a, you know where the kids are going to get water from the well in between. It, it's very difficult without visiting these places to really get and you know without visiting varanasi itself with its kind of sensory overload to kind of appreciate it and we can only try um and you know we meet criticism for being white and working in um ethnic minority communities well this obviously if i'm going to india it's not so here i spend a lot of time kind of that's a separate thing but when we're working in India that we always kind of come up against the white savior issue. Yeah. Which it has been such a feature and still remains a feature. You know, you can be 18 and you can be like, Hey, I'm going to go and work in an orphanage for two weeks and have lots of pictures of me with, um, little black babies. And, um, uh, then, you know, and, and we, we know that it's just bad for everybody. Um, and it builds that, um, culture of deference which um turns my stomach um so for me working with these young women is really about listening to what they need and supporting them in that development because they don't have access to the same stuff that i do they haven't had um the ability to um to to go you know to go every week and train with jamie on pads too Uh, they don't have it english to access the resources like one of the first things i was doing was translating um gavin de becker's um pre-incident indicators into hindi and honestly for these girls that are being preyed on all the time you know we talk a lot you know we talk about how what percentage of violence is people that you know as opposed to street violence in india the ratio is really skewed Mm. because although there's a huge amount of domestic violence there's also an even bigger proportion of street violence, you know. Uh, so that kind of social violence, predatory violence, all of this kind of stuff, um, it, it doesn't look quite the same in that context. All right. So, so when you're looking at pre-incident indicators for women that have not had access to that kind of um, material before, but who have lived it in every kind of way for them to see you could just see the light bulbs you could just see it and and just understanding and interpreting what's going on for them um, is is a massive massive step forward Um, so for me it's about really trying to bring what i can in you know because i'm not an expert all i'm trying to do is provide expert information to people who need it um, who are really at the uh, in in the front line in the absolutely in the front line? These these women are warriors for sure.
0: Yeah, I I, I resonate with everything you say, and it's it's something I didn't really have perspective on until I became a parent. Um, the, the value of one life, you know, like when you, I I had someone come to me when I was in my early twenties, someone I trained that had used something I taught and had avoided a knife situation right which may or may not have ended up badly we don't know what the intention was but he used the training and it worked right which happy days I took that as like oh that's nice but if you taught something that saved one person's life and but your mission is to save thousands right it doesn't necessarily resonate with you but when I looked at that as a parent and gone would I have wanted that person to, de- to learn their whole career so they could teach my child that one thing that saved their life you betcha like that one life is everything when you are someone who cares about that one person who was saved, right? And I think that's that's the value in this. It's not about how many we reach. It's about every single life that is impacted positively as a result of what we do. Uh, and uh, and again, it's the, it's the reason this podcast continues. <laughs> I don't know who's gonna listen. I don't know who might get some value out of this. And I don't know who might listen to Mary Stevens and go, oh my God. I need to dedicate my life to doing something for these people. Um, and we just don't know. There, there could be someone listening right now with a mil in the bank going, I need to fund this operation. Like, you, you don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'll give you Mary's PayPal details if you are
1: out there. <laughs> Maybe it'd be better if you just kind of put that into Fairfights PayPal details.
0: <laughs> no, just if too straight.
1: just randomly arrives without any kind of message, I'll probably end up with more cats and that wouldn't be good for
0: anybody. <laughs> Your Zoom setup would get dramatically better. We would notice. We would notice if you suddenly, suddenly. <laughs> setup. Um, sure. Cool, Mary. As, as we're coming towards the end, I, I do, do you want to touch on something we haven't mentioned. You're also a children's author and you write martial arts books. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I could kind of like reach out here in my books. Um, that's something I kind of f- fell into by accident. Um, And um, I mean, who doesn't want to write children's books, seriously. Um, But as, um, as a former English teacher, um, I love to write, and um, an opportunity came my way to audition for um, Oxford University Press, um, were recruiting, uh, and they had this idea of writing a story about samurai monkeys. Um, And with my like, um, interest in um, teaching children accessible martial arts skills that are relevant to them in their everyday life, um, stories are a great way to communicate that. So um, so I kind of went a little bit overboard with it, you know, they, they required um, a, a chapter, two chapters and some character sketches. And so one of the first things I did was I ditched the fact that, the, that both the key characters were supposed to be male. <laughs> that's a huge opportunity being missed there yep. you know you're a, f- a father of many daughters <laughs> and uh, i'm sure you want your daughters to have some <laughs> sorry about the cats some feisty role models yeah absolutely yeah and it's nice to have some literature for seven or eight year olds that doesn't depend on them being fairies or princesses um so and i know that's not all that's there for girls of that age but it, there's definitely room for some strong role models for women at that um, at that early stage. And the advantage of writing for seven and eight-year-olds is you can use all the martial arts tropes that they'll come across later on in their life. But when they see that in, you know, various martial arts movies or whatever later on, they'll be like, oh, that's just like I read in Warrior Monkeys when I was seven.
0: <laughs> yeah, they copied, they copied Warrior Monkeys. <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah, yeah. Definitely, <laughs> quite how many martial arts cliches that can work in. It's, it's been it's been a joy. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I I have written uh, three Warrior Monkeys books. Highly recommend them for um, ages seven to nine. Available internationally on Amazon.
0: Very nice, very nice. A- and your pen name because it's not Mary, is it?
1: Oh yeah, MC Stevens.
0: MC Stevens. MC Stevens. Warrior Monkeys. Mary was uh, was very kind to send one to to my daughter Alice, and she absolutely loved it. So uh, I highly recommend that for. Any kids, whether they whether they're into martial arts or not, um, Alice just liked it because it was a cool story. and she likes monkeys, so yeah, that's all you need sometimes. If you just love monkeys, that's all you need sometimes. Uh, awesome, Mary. Look, I I feel like there's another couple of episodes in this conversation, uh, but but let's let's leave it there for now. I know you're going to hang around and do the bonus questions with us in a minute. Uh, but for those who'd like to find out more about you or more about Fair Fight, uh, do you have some links that we can we can uh, send people to? Yeah,
1: sure. So Fair Fight's main website is fairfight.nl, because Netherlands. Um, And um, obviously, anybody in Fair Fight can put you in touch with me. But my, um, my uh, email is mary at uh, athenakarate.com. So if people want to email me or look me up on Facebook, I hang out on Facebook quite a lot posting cat pictures.
0: Lots of cats and home dojos. Uh, I'm actually not convinced that Mary has a house. Uh, I actually think she (laughs) might live in the room that you're seeing right now if you're on YouTube. Uh, because I've I've never seen anything else other, other than um, I think the cats have a house and Mary lives in the dojo. I think that's that's how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mary, thank you very much for joining us on the Managing Violence podcast. It's been awesome, and uh, and I hope some people out there have uh, have heard about you for the first time and and uh, decided to follow a little bit more closely uh, what you're doing. So, thank you very much. Thank you once again to the wonderful Mary Stevens or the author MC Stevens if you would like to pick up Warrior Monkeys. Please make sure you check out the work that has been done by Fair Fight. Uh, They're doing incredible work all over the world with incredible people, just like Mary at the helm. Folks, uh, one last message just from me. Uh, I am now making myself available for seminars. I've been asked a couple of times whether I'd be interested in speaking to different martial arts groups, to dojos or to online gatherings uh, about my findings on the Managing Violence podcast, the things I've learned, some of my own insights. And I've now decided to make myself available for that both face-to-face here in Australia uh, or face-to-face globally, hopefully, eventually one day, uh, once, once we're allowed to travel again, uh, or alternatively uh, on Zoom or whatever online platform you're currently meeting can, uh, can talk to you for as little as an hour, as much as a day. It depends what you'd like, but uh, more than happy to make myself available for seminars. You can get more information on that at joesaunders.com.au. That's J-O-E saunders.com.au. Thank you very much. We will be back next week with the wonderful Debbie Steven. Until then, talk to you next time.